There is something wrong with the world. Can you see it? Do you feel it? It's all over the internet, on our news feeds, in our relationships. Things are just wrong, and they are getting worse. Society has become, in a word, toxic. But the gospel has an antidote. You see, some of you were once like that. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God. By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of our God. They stood side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and answered the call. They moved forward, advancing the ideas that everyone was free, everyone was created equal, everyone has the right to pursue their own dreams, and that our nation was founded on those ideals. But not all of them came back. Some remained, never to go home, never to see their families. And some, we lost this side of the field of battle. They were sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, greatly loved. They charged forward for honor and peace and freedom. We acknowledge the empty space where we want them to be. Together we pay sincere tribute to those who fought for us, those we remember, those we love. Well, Memorial Day is appropriately named because we remember the fallen. That's a powerful video and a reminder of the sacrifice that so many have made for our freedom in this country. And so I encourage you to take a moment, whether it's today or tomorrow, whenever you're firing up the grill, and just reflect on that reality. Now, today we've come to week five of our series called Detoxicity. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, a church that we've discovered had some problems, and we're learning how to apply the gospel solution. Now, our topic today is a pretty easy one. It's the topic of toxic disagreements. Has anybody in this room ever had a disagreement with somebody? Yeah. Yeah. Now, in our state, just to, give you, to get you started today, in our state, New Jersey, one disagreement, I think, has defined our time, right? This disagreement has split families this disagreement has reached college campuses. This disagreement is common discussion around the water cooler at work, or the Zoom room at work, I guess, nowadays. Uh, this disagreement has ignited the internet and blown up hashtags on Twitter. I am speaking, of course, of the great 
Taylor Ham versus pork roll debate. Now, case in point, I learned this last Monday, May 23rd, was National Pork Roll Day. Uh, yes, there is such a thing, apparently. Um, but the internet, people on the internet have been advocating the changing the name to National Taylor Ham Day. In fact, a local news station took to Twitter, and uh, they took a poll, and here's what they found. Uh, as the poll kicked off, Taylor Ham was in the lead. Uh, now, how strongly do people feel about this issue? So strongly that back in 2016, a New Jersey Assembly uh, person actually introduced two bills. One version proposed New Jersey's state sandwich would be Taylor ham, egg, and cheese. The other bill would be pork roll, egg, and cheese. It's a debate that's been raging for 150 years. And I just asked myself this week, who knew people could feel this strongly about food? Now, let's take a poll in this room this morning. How many of you would vote for Taylor ham? Okay, how many of you would vote for pork roll? All right, it's reversed. The first service went to Taylor Ham. See, it's even dividing churches. There you go. <laughs> now, depending on our response, this meat has the potential to cause a toxic disagreement. And since it was National Pork Roll Taylor Ham Day last Monday, it's appropriate that we've come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're familiar with that, you know that the subject of meat comes center stage. In fact, look at how Paul starts this section. He says, now regarding your question about food, and he's talking about meat that's been offered to idols. And there you have it, right? The Corinthians are arguing about food, meat. They would be right at home here in New Jersey. This verse begins a new section in the letter where Paul is again responding to an issue raised from a previous letter he received from the Corinthians. And we learn very quickly that there's two sides to this issue. In fact, I wonder if their early church took a poll about the meat and the idols. It was becoming contentious and it was dividing the church. Now, an argument, like, uh, an argument about food might seem kind of funny to start off today and even might seem funny that it's even in the Bible. But when people argue over something, when there is sharp disagreements, it's usually about a deeper issue. So let me give you an example. Think about the, the subject of marriage. We covered marriage and divorce last week. Pastor Dave covered that. Um, what are the two biggest disagreements that married couples have, statistically speaking? Right, the first is money. Right, but money is never really about money. It's about our wants, our desires, our ability to live how we want, to achieve our, our goals. It, it's a deeper issue. Right, the second is about communication. But communication is not simply about using words. It's about hearing and validating the other person. And when we're not doing that, arguments blow up and they last for a long time. Now, sharp disagreements often occur over emotional Issues, And we live in an emotional, cultural moment. In fact, it seems like we've lost the ability to have an objective conversation nowadays. For example, you probably saw in the news this week there was a horrific school shooting in Texas where little children were killed. And to this, we just have to say this is the epitome of evil in our world. But rather than running and focusing on empathy and grief in the moment, immediately disagreements started over gun control policy solutions, and that created some rancor. Now, this is obviously a multi-layered issue, but I use it to remind us that we should grieve and, ha- and pray for these families. But it's also an example on how divided we are in our world. We live in a society where everybody wants to run to the extremes, and it seems many times like nobody is listening or thinking clearly. And then as we've done each week, how about we think about the church? The past few years have exposed more disagreements than I can count. 
Center stage, vaccines, masks, politics, immigration, they're, they're, they're right at the forefront. But if you've been around the church for a long time, you know that it's hardly the first time Christians have disagreed on issues, right? Other topics have included what? End times interpretations, views on alcohol consumption, participation in war, Halloween celebrations, Harry Potter books, right? School choices, levels of modesty and dress, translations of the Bible, and the perennial favorite in evangelical churches, worship music, because God only can worship in one style of music. Now, a list of those items, as I list those items, emotions are probably rising in your heart because you feel strongly about some of those issues. You may even have said at some point in time, I don't understand how a Christian could take a stance on that Fill in the blank. Whatever it is, if you feel that way, you understand what was happening at the church in Corinth in chapter 8. Where have your disagreements turned toxic? Now, I imagine there have been a few instances in your life where you've had a toxic disagreement. Maybe, maybe even you're walking into church right now on your ride to church this morning, if you're here in person. Uh, th- there was a fight, and you're asking yourself right now, how do I detoxify this situation? Well, for the Corinthians, it was food. And Paul lays the groundwork for the solution right up front here. What does he say? Chapter, chapter 8, verse 1. He says, yes, to the Corinthians, yes, about this food and idols. Yes, we, have all, all we, have, we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. Now, notice the principles he outlines, right? First, knowledge is not everything. Temper knowledge with love. And our highest goal should be what? It should be to love God first. And with that being said, Paul then takes three chapters to lay out his response to the Corinthians. Now, many people separate these sections, but I think it's hard to understand chapter 8 without also examining chapters 9 and 10, because the topics that Paul introduced in chapter 8 are brought back up in these following two chapters. And what we're going to see is that while he starts with food, like most disagreements, it's about a much deeper and more important issue. So how do we avoid toxic disagreements? Well, I think we should pause And we should make three considerations. Three considerations Paul brings up. Consider your opponent, consider your use of freedom, and consider your allegiance. And with that being said, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Heavenly Father, we come before you and uh, we do admit, Lord, that, that we can sometimes be a disagreeable people, Lord. But this morning, as we look at your word, I ask that you would just soften our hearts, open our our minds and our ears to hear what you have to say through the power of your spirit, Lord God. May my words fade, may your words come up, and may we leave this place um, more unified, more humble, more desiring to give you glory in all that we do, Lord. And as we pray each week, we ask that you you would help us, Lord. Help us and humble us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, consider your... Opponent. Now, if we're all honest with ourselves, this is the reason most disagreements turn into a toxic boxing match. We don't consider our opponent because in American culture in 2022, it has become a place where it is virtuous to shame, 
and to vilify and to shout down our opponents. And so we stifle debates because we don't want to be challenged and because we want to appeal to our side. We must toe the line on the narrative. Now this, this is sad to me because what I believe is that actually keeps us from getting at the deeper truth, right? It keeps us from getting to the deeper issue of the disagreement. And this is what Paul says in verse 4. He talks about this reality. He says, so what about eating meat that's been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there's only one god. And I find, I find Paul's tone pretty humorous right here. He goes, so, all right, so we brought this topic. So, what about this meat sacrifice to idols? What about this ancient pork roll, tail, or ham debate? What should we say? And the second half of the verse actually shows us what the deeper issue is. It's not really about food. It's about the god you worship. It's about the God you worship. And so let me just give you a little bit of cultural background on this issue at hand. Um, Paul makes it very clear here that it, it, it is a meat issue. And so obviously meat comes from animals and it was common practice in the ancient world for some of these animals to be sacrificed in the pagan temples in Corinth. In fact, most of the meat available in the marketplace had a history You could trace it back to a temple sacrifice. And so what's interesting is that the Greek word that's used right here uh, for meat, for food, is the word idolathuton, which was not a pagan term. It was actually a word that was used by the early Christians. The Christians made it up to denote this type of animal sacrifice. They, they were the ones dealing with this situation. Now, furthermore, the, the meat was not just something that was purchased and it was cooked on a home grill like we would today. You go down to ShopRite, you get a slice of meat, you cook it up. No, meat was expensive, and it's, it's a pretty, getting pretty expensive nowadays too. <laughs> but it was more, even more expensive back in the day. Um, only the wealthy could afford meat. Meat was a delicacy that was reserved for things like birthday parties, large feasts and celebrations, high-end restaurants. They were the ones that would have this meat. And many of these meals happened in these temples. And, if, and even more to the point, uh, if you were a Corinthian and you were in the business world, business lunches often happened at these Temples, And so, if you, again, if you were a wealthy Corinthian Christian business person, it would be customary for you to go and meet with your business partners in this temple and eat this meat as these, these statues of these pagan gods were standing there right in front of you. Now, can you see why that might have caused a problem? Right? In fact, some of us in this room listening right now, or you're listening later on, your company right now might be uh, asking you to do something that violates your conscience as a believer, They may want you to endorse a product, a practice, or use speech that goes against one of your core beliefs. Maybe even this week you got an email that said you need to submit to this company policy or you're out of work. And the question is, will you obey God rather than men? That may be what's before you right now. Will you trust God in this situation? And if you own the business, you might lose customers because you're perceived to be on the wrong side of history. Now that was what the Corinthians were facing, and that's why I bring it up. Eating this meat was a complex matter that touched on the spiritual, the social, the economic, and cultural issues of the day. And in the church, there were differing opinions about how to engage in these activities. And this debate became so heated because of this underlying disagreement about worship. And so Paul continues in verse 5. He says this, There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. 
So again, follow that thought line. It's continuing from verse 4. Paul acknowledges that the Corinthians know that these Greek gods like Athena and Apollo, they don't actually exist. At least some of them do. He even commends the Corinthians for their correct theology in verse 6. He says this. It's a creedal statement. He says, There was one God, the Father, by whom all things were created, for whom we live. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. See, there's one God, he says, the Father. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ. He created the world. He gives us life. Paul's formulating a Trinitarian concept right here. And he's affirming the Corinthians. But he's also, I think, laying the groundwork for a rebuke that he's going to bring up in chapter 10. So we're going to get there in just a minute. This theology, this knowledge is a good thing, but if everyone agrees with this, if everybody believes this, you might ask yourself, why is there a problem? Why is Paul writing this letter? Well, in verse 7, he highlights the fault line that's causing this fracture. However, he says, not all believers know this. Not everybody's on the same page. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real so when you, they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods and their weak consciences are violated. So hopefully that makes sense now, right? There, there is, not everybody understands this, we read in verse 7. We get a fuller picture of the two groups that are arguing here in Corinth. First, we've already been introduced to a group that Paul calls the knowers, The knowers. These are the people who don't think eating meat sacrificed to idols. It's not a big deal, they say. Why are we even talking about this? After all, they possess the spiritual knowledge that idols are false gods. They are the the mature people, the spiritually gifted people, or so they think. And as we learn in verse 1, their knowledge makes them feel really important. Now, second, verse 7 shows us that there are Christians there with what he calls a weak conscience. Now, what does that mean? That category is kind of confusing because to the modern ear, as you listen to it right now, you think, well, somebody who has a weak conscience, they're morally lax, right? Sin doesn't bother those people as much. But in this, what Paul's writing to in this context, it means the opposite, right? That these people are the people who see the world as black and white. Their convictions are violated more easily. They don't see gray areas. They're less flexible. They're the the Corinthians who avoid any anything that appears worldly. What the reality is there are likely newer Christians who have come out of a pagan lifestyle to follow Jesus, and they are still enticed by idol worship and could easily fall back into this practice. And so they're really sensitive about this issue. Now, if you contrast that again with the first group, the knowers, they're the more mature people. And ironically, they're the ones who are more flexible that they see a morally gray area on these issues because they feel better informed. I'm educated, I know, right? In his letter to the Romans, chapter 14, you may recall, Paul uses the language of the strong and the weak, but the word strong doesn't appear in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 8, and so it appears there's some nuance, which again is why I think he, gets, he comes back at them in chapter 10. Now, perhaps you can see right now why these two groups are at odds. And what Paul is saying here in the beginning is, consider your opponents. The key principle he's drawing out is this. In any disagreement, seek the good of the other person. Seek the good of the other person. And this is a principle that's directed at primarily at the knowers, the more mature Christians who should know better. But Paul has a word for both groups in verse 8. He says this, It's true... 
that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. Again, notice what he's saying here. Food isn't the issue. Now, to the more mature, to these knowers, Paul says, listen, we don't lose anything if we don't eat the meat. So my question is, why, do you, why, why is it so hard for you to give up the meat? And to the less mature, to, to these weak conscience folks, he says, um, we can't win God's approval by what we eat. In other words, um, what you eat doesn't justify you. Because that's one of the reasons that group was so focused on this issue. They thought they could earn God's approval by their actions. And in thinking that way, they've actually become black and white legalists. So Paul's offering a corrective to both groups here. And he says, in any disagreement, it's easy to point, uh, paint the other person uh, in, in a poor light. And so in this section, Paul just says, consider your opponents, seek the good of the other person. Now, you might ask yourself right now, how do we do that? I want to give you a couple, a couple, um, couple ideas. First, I would just say you need to see the other person. And what I mean by that is we need to recognize that every one of our opponents is made in the image of God. And if they're a fellow brother or sister in Christ, they are a blood-bought saint. They are part of the family of God. Therefore, we should not vilify them is what he's getting at here. Let me give you an example. Um, an important issue that's being discussed by Christians in Christian circles right now is the topic of education. Right? The last few years have shed light on the schooling system and raised questions in many people's minds about curriculum and parental rights in education. And the question that people are debating and arguing about is, should you send your kids to public school, to private school? Should you homeschool if you can't afford the private school? And people feel really strongly about that issue. The point is that we should leave room to understand that different people will come to different conclusions. Don't vilify the other person. What should we do? Well, secondly, I think we should listen to the other person. And we live in a world where listening is a lost art. We're distracted. I'll come home from work often, and I'll be looking at my phone, catching up on what I missed, or I'll pull out a magazine, and my wife will be trying to talk to me, and I'll be, I'll be half listening. And then she'll say to me, you're not listening to me, are you? And I'll say, no. <laughs> right? Confirmation from the front row. Yeah. We don't, when we don't give our full attention, when we don't listen carefully and empathetically, it's very easy to misunderstand, and that creates the toxic nature to our disagreements. And so finally, what we should do is we should pray for the other person. When was the last time you prayed for the person you were having a disagreement with? Because here's what happens more often. We get in an argument, and we, we have decided that the other person, they're wrong, and so what we do is we go over and we gather information to build our case, and we talk with a bunch of other people who agree with us, and then we just think, that's right, that person is even more wrong after I've done that, and we just get frustrated. But what if we stopped and just simply prayed that God would open the eyes of the other person, and that God would open our eyes? Because seeking the other person, Paul said, the good of the other person, is an act of love. That's what builds the church. And I think it can also cause some revival in our world because what if, what if we as Christians were the ones who considered our opponents and sought their good? Might that make a difference in society at large? Because at Corinth, this was an important underlying issue. This wasn't just a debate about pork roll and tail or ham. This was about how we worship God. And there were two groups on either side of that issue. And while there may have been freedom to disagree... 
Paul challenges them. He challenges specifically that former group, consider how you use your freedom. Consider how you use your freedom. Because the reality is that our actions have consequences, and those consequences may affect more than just us. So look at the warning he gives in verse 9. He says, but you must be so careful, you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. So this continues the argument that he's been making about considering your opponent, but now he introduces that key word, freedom. Now the NLT, which I'm using here, translates the word as freedom, but other translations uh, use the word right. Consider your rights. Now truthfully, no single English word captures the full meaning Uh, But in this context, it appears that these knowers, this more spiritually knowledgeable group, thought they had had a right to eat that food in the temple. And so it's, it's, it's exposing here the toxic nature of the disagreement. Essentially, this group is writing to Paul, and they're saying, Paul, come on, really? Paul, listen, Paul, why, why can't we eat this meat? And more than that, Paul, how dare those other Christians come and tell me that they're trying to attempt, they're, trying, they're attempting to control me and violate my rights. How dare they? And Paul simply says, be careful how you use your freedom. Be careful how you exercise this right. It's affecting more than just you. Now, <clears throat> maybe a relevant example to kind of give this a modern flair uh, is our use of social media. Uh, Some recent studies I've come across have actually uh, shown that the effect of social media changed around the year 2014 because that was the year that a majority of people joined a platform like Facebook or Twitter. And so now you can be standing in a group of people and everyone has their phone out kind of like this, right? This is how we live our lives in, 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 in this little square rectangle in front of us that's glowing. After that year, our civil public discourse degraded even more than it had before. And social media has exacerbated those toxic disagreements. Now, why? Because you know it's much easier to vilify other people online. In fact, look at this graph right here from the Barna Group, which shows the reasons people agree and argue on social media. Look at this, okay? So reasons people argue on social media. 17% said, I did not like what a stranger posted, all right? 17%, I did not like what somebody I knew posted, 19%, I was defending somebody else in an argument. I was jumping in to what was going on. Uh, uh, 22%, someone I knew did not like what I posted, all right? And then a whopping 26%, a stranger did not like what I posted. Now, that covers just about everything, doesn't it? It sounds to me like all we're doing is arguing about whatever's out there on social media, right? So here's the illustration. You may have the freedom to post whatever you want online, but it may be wiser and more loving to restrict what we post for the sake of others. Now, to be clear, there are issues we should advocate, but not every opinion needs to be aired, especially if you know that opinion might cause unnecessary division. And so what he's saying is by restricting your freedom, you might help reduce a scenario that looks like this. (laughs) Have you ever felt that way? He says, consider how you use your freedom. This is, how, this is how he continues, verse 10. He says, for if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that's been offered to an idol? 
And again, you're saying here, you're, at this point, you're saying, man, I thought this was just about pork roll, Pastor Bob. No, consider the other person, he says, consider your use of freedom, because it may be okay for you to eat pork roll in the temple, but you may hurt the other person. And to show how big a deal this is, Paul continues in verse 11. He says, so because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be what? Will be destroyed. But Paul says, I hope you like that pork roll because, man, look at what it did. You were flaunting your superior knowledge, but you should have known better. You didn't help the weaker believer. Because if you're so mature, he says, why couldn't you restrain yourself for the sake of the other person? Now, that word destroyed has the meaning of eternal damnation. And I know what you're saying, right? I thought it was just about pork roll, right? Remember, it was what was under the disagreement. It was worship. That was the issue. The believers with the weak conscience had just come out of this life dominated by idol worship. And if they saw the more knowledgeable believers eating in the temple, well, they might think it's okay. And they start worshiping these false gods again. And so Paul is saying that this action taken by the more knowledgeable, the more mature, might actually lead the less mature person back into a life of sin. And he takes it a step further in verse 12. He says, and when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. (laughs) Wow. Consider your use of freedom because an improper use of freedom, he says, may lead you to sin and encourage others to do something that they think is wrong. It's not just about pork roll or Taylor ham, whatever. Don't use your freedom for yourself. Consider others. And Paul then shows how far he will go in verse 13. He says, so if what I eat causes another believer to sin... I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Now, (laughs) did you catch that, right? If it means I keep another believer from sinning, I will give up that meat. I will give up that pork roll, that tail or ham for the rest of my life. I don't want to cause another believer, brother or sister, to stumble. Now, that's a bold step. But it shows the principle Paul's getting at in the second section. He says, use your freedom in a self-giving way. And if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I don't have time to go into it in detail. The whole chapter is about Paul using his example and introducing the same idea that he got at in 8.13. This is how he summarizes chapter 9. He says, even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, but uh, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. So the whole chapter is a call for the believers to follow his example, to lay down their rights for the sake of others in the gospel. But here's the tension we find in American culture. We often think freedom is about us. It's all about us. Now, don't get me wrong. I know it's Memorial Day tomorrow. I I think it is important, it is crucial. We live in a free country. Anyone who thinks that freedom is a bad thing or not a big deal, you have not lived in a country with no freedom. Paul is saying, though, 
that we should use our freedom to help others. We should, as much as we can, consider the good of the other person. Because if my brother or sister struggles with something, maybe we need to give it up for them, like, like the meat or the pork roll, whatever. Let me, let me give you another illustration. When I was growing up, again, it's Memorial Day tomorrow, unofficial start of summer, we vacationed at Long Beach Island. And I love going there because I love playing in the water And what I would do is I would go wade out as far as I could with my raft. And when I was younger, though, I I couldn't go out that far. And what would happen is that my father would often go in with me. And uh, even though he was bigger and he was stronger and he would have enjoyed going way further out with the waves because the waves were bigger and he could catch them and he could ride them all the way back to the shore, he would have loved doing that. What he would do is he would stay with me in the shallower waters, the weaker one, to help me. And the question is, where is God calling you, even if you are free, to restrict your freedom for the sake of another? Now, one common example that's thrown around is, is the topic of alcohol. Maybe somebody's struggling with alcohol. And even though it doesn't bother you, like, and, you and you're free to drink, when you have that other person over to your house, wouldn't it be more loving to restrict your freedom for the other person? And there's a lot of other examples, but that one just get you thinking. Because when you choose, in some cases, to lovingly restrict your freedom, you can avoid a toxic disagreement. Consider the other person, consider your use of freedom, but finally, and most importantly, I think, consider your allegiance. Consider your allegiance. Now, this is where I want to skip ahead to chapter 10. So 1 Corinthians 10, because in this chapter, Paul returns to the point he made in chapter 8. And specifically, he addresses the root of the disagreement, and that's the topic of worship. So he offers two examples to teach the Corinthians. First, he gives an Old Testament example, and then second, he gives the example of the Lord's Supper. He begins this way, verse 1. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. So chapter 10, I think, is specifically addressing the mature, the knowledgeable side of this disagreement. These are the people who think it's not a big deal to go about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul uses an Old Testament example here because it's likely that these knowers, they, were, they had a Jewish background, where the weak conscience people probably came out of a Greek, a Gentile background. And Paul reminds these people of the Exodus story, right? So the next couple of verses, he says, Remember, friends, when our ancestors wandered in the wilderness and they were led by God through a cloud at night, right? Remember, how God parted the Red Sea to save them and allowed them by his grace to pass over uh, on dry ground. Remember how God provided food in the wilderness when they were hungry and when they were grumbling against me. Remember, remember, he says it was God who provided and protected them. And then he says in verse five something interesting. He says God was not pleased with them. Now, you might ask, well, why was God not pleased with their ancestors. Look at verse six to eight. He says, these things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry and we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Now, if you didn't pick up on this, this is recalling the scene of the golden calf in Exodus 32. 
And if you were here for uh, last fall, uh, we went through the book of Exodus, and in our Advent series, we covered uh, the, the calf in detail uh, as we walked through the book. Uh, what we find in that scene is what? God, God brings his people, he saves his people, Israel, brings them to Mount Sinai, and then Moses, the leader, goes up to the top of Mount Sinai to meet with God to get the Ten Commandments, and uh, all the people are left at the bottom of the, uh, of the mountain. And what happens? They get impatient. Right? They're saying, how long is God going to make us wait? And what do they do? They construct an idol, a false god, a golden calf, which mirrored the gods of the Egyptians. And then what happens? What happens after that is they what? They have a huge party. Right? There was a celebration and feasting and drinking and sexual immorality happening. And Now, does that sound familiar? Right, especially if you're a Corinthian Christian, does that not sound like the same thing these knowledgeable Corinthian Christians are dealing with? Because in Corinth, what was happening? This meat was getting sacrificed to these idols in the form of these Greek gods in these pagan temples. These statues were standing right there. There was probably sexual immorality happening as part of their worship. And, and Paul's looking at these more mature Christians and saying, you don't think this is a big deal? Paul reminds them, listen, Moses came down from the mountain and there was judgment that fell on the people because they engaged in this activity. If you'll remember, there was a gruesome scene where 23,000 people were killed for their idolatry. And then Paul brings his argument to a head in verse 14. He says, so, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. And that word flee means get out of there as fast as you can. Like, just at, as fast as you can run, get out of there. You might recall it's the same word, the same Greek word, fugo, which is used in 1 Corinthians 6.18, where Paul says, get away from sexual sin as fast as you can. He's saying the same thing here about idols. Why? <laughs> because this disagreement about food is not about food. It's about worship. It's about how we are communicating our allegiance. Now, you might be saying right now, what does this have to do with disagreements, Pastor Bob? <laughs> it has a lot to do with disagreements because the things we disagree about, the, the things we disagree about most sharply are the issues that have the greatest hold on our hearts because the harder you fight about an issue, it's likely that the deeper that, that issue, that, that idol, it's lodged in your heart. It's got a hold of your heart. And so Paul says just flee from those idols, get away from them. Now, why is that important? The Corinthians thought that these idols were just these statues carved out of wood and stone. And Paul then goes on in the next, next example to say, no, there's a demonic element to them. The food sacrificed to idols is actually sacrificed to demons. And so he takes the argument to the Lord's Supper, the communion that believers share when they remember the sacrifice of Jesus, which has a uniting effect. Paul says, that's the same thing that's true when you eat this meat sacrificed to idols. Look at verse, uh, verse 20. He says, I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. Now that sounds pretty harsh. <clears throat> but what he's showing, he's showing the Corinthians that this is why it's such a big deal. He's correcting these more mature Corinthians who are making the same arguments they made in chapter 6. What did they say? They said, I'm allowed to do anything, Paul. But he says, but not everything's good for you. They said, I'm not allowed to, I'm, I'm allowed to do anything. 
Um, he says, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned with your own good, but, but for the good of others. Now, what's likely is the, these mature Christians were holding so tight onto their freedom here, and Paul is, is giving them two hard words. He says, you're acting like, like the Israelites with the golden calf. You're drinking from the cup of demons. Now, what's interesting is that verses 25 to 30, the end of chapter 10, Paul seems to indicate that it's okay in some instances to eat this meat in the marketplace without raising questions. He seems to be saying that in certain instances this is okay, but it should be a matter of conscience. And I think one of the things he's getting at is is that even though you might have the freedom to do it, it might actually be better to avoid it entirely. And why do I say that? I say that because we should consider what our actions say about our allegiance, and we should be humbly aware of temptation. Because the reason I think these knowledgeable, mature Corinthian Christians were reluctant to give up on this meat was, I think at least partly, because of what it would cost them. Because these feasts, this meat sacrificed to idols, it was a gateway into Corinthian culture. It opened up business opportunities for them. Money was involved. It allowed them to participate in these large celebrations like the Isthmus, the big athletic games that happened. And if you went to one of those things, if you were the person at this feast or at this celebration who said, you know what, I'm not going to eat, it would make you stand out. It would cost you something. And that's why Paul said in in chapter 10, verse 13, he says this, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will still show you a way out so that you can what? So that you can endure. Because you see, I think this disagreement became so toxic because these, Christian, these Christians were holding on to their status and their influence and their pride. They weren't willing to give it up. And so they leaned into this argument about freedom. And Paul says, yes, yes, you do have the freedom. You are mature. But trusting God would be better. He will faithfully provide a way out. He's going to give you something better And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to finish by offering just a few examples about how this might play out in the modern world. And and I think these examples fall under the category of investing. Where do we spend our money? As a resource in thinking this through, I would commend to you an organization I was recently introduced to at a conference called the Eventide Center for Faith and Investing. And they're they're a Christian educational firm that teaches Christians to think ethically about which companies they invest their money in. And so as I use these examples, um, I use them to show you how difficult it would be to give up this meat for the Corinthians because it would, have, it would have cost them something and they would have been reticent to do so. And when I show these examples, you'll know why. So what do, um, <clears throat> what's a meat and idols look like in our day? What's a meat and idols look like in our day? Well, it might look like the businesses we choose to invest in and purchase from. So how many of us have an Apple product in our, in our pockets? How many of us ask where and how it was made? It's probably a lot of us. Are we okay with all the business practices, including making products in a company like China, where it's a country that continues to engage in human rights violations against groups like Uyghur Muslims? 
Now, I'm not saying that we necessarily have to give up Apple products, but I use the illustration again to show how difficult it was for the Corinthians to give up meat. So Apple may be making products that help humanity, but do the ends justify the means? That's the tension. How many of us purchase products from Amazon? Are we okay with the new policy they have to fly people to different states to have abortions if the laws change? What would it mean to give up Amazon? Over the last few months, people have been having a lot of discussions about canceling uh, their Disney subscriptions because their products, we learn, are used to, uh, they're thinking about using them to promote sexual and gender issues in kids' programming. Are we making sacrifices with monthly subscriptions that do something contrary to Scripture? What would it mean to give up Disney, which would include things like Star Wars and Marvel and a whole host of other things? Now, there's other examples I can give, and I'm not advocating a boycott for these companies necessarily, depending on your conscience, but I do want you to recognize two realities. First, there may be some people who feel strongly enough to not do business with those companies, and that's something that we should respect. Secondly, some of us might need to have our convictions challenged because we don't realize some values that some companies advocate. Perhaps we need to rethink where we spend our money. It's something we should at least wrestle with. It's a matter of conscience. And I use it again to show how big a deal it was for the Corinthians to give up the meat. It would mean losing a lot. It would kind of feel like this. It it was going to hurt. So no matter what disagreement come before us, we should always wrestle with the question, what is God calling me to do? And we answer that question by looking at those three consideration principles. Consider your opponent, Consider your use of freedom. Consider your allegiance. And that final principle shows us that the deepest desires of our hearts and the issues we hold most tightly to, there is a reason that the first commandment said, you shall have no other gods before me. And the reason our toxic disagreements happen is often because we're holding so tightly to some other god that's captured our heart. It's not just about pork roll, egg, and cheese. It's about loving the other person well and giving glory to God in every area of our life. And that's why Paul finishes chapter 10 with these words. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles in the church of God. I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. And if giving glory to God is central, the Holy Spirit will bring clarity to our lives and our disagreements. Amen? Let me invite the worship team to come uh, on stage for one final song. And as they come, let me me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and I just, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the applicability of a letter like 1 Corinthians where Paul writes specifically with a pastoral heart to the church and yet he writes with conviction that comes from you. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would um, help us in our disagreements, Lord. Help us to consider our opponents, those that disagree with us, Lord. Father, help us to consider how we use our freedom. Help us to consider um, our allegiance first and foremost to you, Lord, that everything we do might bring you glory that we might lay down idols on the ground, Lord, that that we would fall to our knees and worship you, the only God who is worthy of worship. 
because this was an issue about worship, Lord, and you are worthy of it. Help us this week, Lord, we pray. Help us to love you more and love you first. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.